The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. One of the most mythologized moments in the entire history of the Civil War took place on May 15, 1864, at the Battle of New Market in the Shenandoah Valley, when the boy cadets of Virginia Military Institute charged against Ron Siegel's Union soldiers. But there's much more to the battle than just this moment now shrouded through legend and fame. We'll talk today with the author of Valley Thunder, The Battle of New Market and the Opening of the Shenandoah Valley Campaign, May 1864. He's Charles R. Knight, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. Total career success. What does it mean to you? World Talk Radio presents a radio program dedicated to help you achieve your career goal. Even in times of economic uncertainty, you can achieve your financial goals. Whether you're a college grad, new in the working environment, or a top-level executive, you will benefit from the practical and proven advice on job search and career advancement. Join Ken and Cheryl Dawson every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, for total career success on World Talk Radio. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you today from the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University. It's such a beautiful day here in the spring of 2010. I thought might I might go home early and do the show from the home office, but I'm back at Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters here in A307 Brewster on campus, as usual, but as usual, not speaking on behalf of the university uh, or this World Talk Radio or anyone else, just for myself, and I know today's guest will do the same thing. Well, we have a few more shows left in this season of 2010. 2010, uh, and a very interesting book to discuss today about a, uh, a battle that had perhaps limited strategic significance, but is certainly uh, well-remembered by people who know anything about the Civil War. Uh, next week, we'll be talking about a, a bigger battle, Battle Chickamauga, with David Powell, who has written a uh, book of maps of the battle and knows the battle uh, backwards and forwards, and will uh, be a return guest to the show. Dave was last on a number of years ago, and it'll be nice to have him back. 
And uh, two weeks from now, uh, Professor Tom Clemens uh, will join us. He's edited uh, Ezra Carman's original account of the 1862 campaign. We've only got volume one on hand, only 500 pages to talk about, but somehow we'll stretch that out for the whole hour and uh, look forward to him completing the other volumes of that work. Uh, so in other housekeeping, if uh, uh, you have the urge to contribute to Civil War Talk Radio's book fund, uh, I'd urge you to do that. You can best do it, best donate to the show by uh, simply using uh, the PayPal website. Uh, I've not figured out a way to put a button on the actual website itself. Uh, you can go to CW. Uh, tr.org, and I believe there's a button there for PayPal, or just enter PayPal, and it'll take you there. Almost any search engine will do that. And make the destination you're sending uh, your donation to civilwartr at aol.com, and uh, you can send money quickly and easily, and I, in turn, will use it for uh, books, including uh, Dave Powell's book, for example. I ordered just two days ago uh, using the Civil War Book Fund, and it arrived this afternoon. I was delighted to see it because our library does not have it here on campus. Uh, in this era of budget crises, uh, the ECU library book acquisition budget took a real hit, and many books that ought to be there are not, uh, one of them being uh, uh, Dave Powell's book, The Maps of Chickamauga. So I was very uh, happy to be able to rely on the Civil War Book Fund and order a copy to be able to discuss it uh, with some meaning next week. Uh, and uh, last note before we dive in, uh, folks are always on the edge of their seats waiting to hear about how the Greenville Stars have done in the past week. Uh, of course, the Greenville Stars U14 girls soccer team season has ended. Uh, it Ended on what seemed to be a very high note two weeks ago, winning our local tournament. Uh, but then just to show that, that uh, real life is part of, of everything, uh, uh, one of our, our best players, uh, and they're all great kids, uh, no distinction among them, uh, while playing not for our team but for her high school team, suffered a concussion. Not an unusual thing in, in youth sports, but... Uh, it was of, of such a nature that she's not going to play soccer any longer. It's not the first time it's happened to her, apparently. And this uh, player that has been on our team for, uh, since she was uh, tiny uh, is, is is done at least for a year uh, and, and uh, possibly longer with the sport. And that, uh, it, not to draw uh, silly comparisons, uh, to minimize... Uh, what happens in war, but this week, uh, discussing the Battle of New Market, we'll be talking about uh, children going to war, literally. Uh, and when someone suffers an injury that takes away something they love, uh, it's not like losing a life, obviously, but it's still uh, a bitter moment and, and uh, uh, really an unfortunate thing, and I feel very bad for uh, for our player. Well, hopefully, uh, uh, but we'll move on from from that point uh, and look for better things to come in next year's season with the U15 uh, Greenville Stars. You'll be hearing about them in the fall uh, more perhaps even than you want to. Well, today we're going to talk about the Battle of Newmarket, uh, 
Uh, and our guest is Charles R. Knight, uh, author of Valley Thunder. Uh, Charles, are you there? Yes, sir, I'm here. Uh, do you go by uh, Charles, Charlie? What, what's appropriate for you? Uh, I prefer Charlie. Charlie is good. And please call me Jerry then. Um, uh, I, normally, I usually have a conversation at some point with an author uh, uh, before having them on the show just to make sure that they uh, have, say, less of an accent than perhaps Ron Siegel uh, and, and can, can be understood clearly. Uh, Charlie, in your case, you and I have never spoken before that I can recall, but right. I, I can tell from uh, but, but the book indicates that you were a historical interpreter uh, at the battlefield, and that was all I needed to know that you would be uh, plenty good at talking about what we're going to talk about today. So I'm uh, very glad to have you on. I'm um, glad to be here. What uh, are you still uh, an interpreter at the battlefield? Uh, no, I've. That was uh, about 10 years ago. Uh, I'm now a uh, curator at the Douglas MacArthur Memorial. That's in, in Norfolk? Right. Now, <clears throat> that's an interesting place for, for listeners who have not been there. It is uh, uh, the closest thing, in my experience, to a Roman shrine that any American citizen has ever received. <laughs> um, is, is that uh, uh, an unfair characterization of, of the Douglas MacArthur site? Uh, I prefer to think of us as kind of like a presidential library for a guy who was never president. Um, we're more than just a museum. Uh, the general and his wife are actually buried on site. We have a very active uh, education and research center. Pretty much anybody that's doing research on World War II and the Pacific occupation of Japan or Korean War has to either physically come on site or does uh, uh, research with us via email. And we also... Uh, also have, uh, of course, the general's belongings, which is the core of our museum collection. Well, it is a fascinating museum. I've, I've, I've seen that. I've never done research there, but uh, the museum is, is a wonderful place to spend time. But what, what you say reminds me of, of conversations with uh, John Kosky at the Museum of the Confederacy, that they have had conflicts there over the years, whether they are to be a museum of the Confederacy or a museum for the Confederacy. Right. Um, do you again? My my impression from the MacArthur Museum was that at some point, at least, somebody who who built it or designed it or had something to do with it was was doing it very much for the memory of, of the general, as opposed to uh, an analytical site. It was much more a celebratory site. Is that fair to say? Uh, and when the place first opened, uh, that would be pretty accurate. Uh, we had new exhibits done uh, probably about fifteen years or so ago. I guess that really uh, looked not just at MacArthur, but more at how he fits into the era that he lived uh, that he lived through. Uh, whereas before, it more or less focused on MacArthur the man. Now it's kind of more of a life and times uh, type of thing, and it, it focuses on uh, uh, the good as well as the bad about MacArthur. Nobody's perfect, and uh, you know MacArthur is, is no exception there. Well, I, I, I'm trying to rack my brain. If, I, if it was less than 15 years ago, I've been there. I'll definitely have to get up there. It's not far from here, and I'll have to go see it sometime soon. Um, how did uh, so? Did you always want to work in museums and history? Uh, how, how did you get to where you are? Uh, I've always been interested in history. Uh, so you know, whenever in school you had to fill out one of those career interest forms, you know, what do you want to do when you grow up, type of thing. <laughs> I always knew I wanted to do something with history, and I grew up in Richmond, uh, so there was always a ton of museums around to go to, so 
I was always going to, uh, like you mentioned, the Museum of the Confederacy, uh, the various battlefields around town. Uh, So I I really had an interest in Civil War uh, from very early on. And uh, when I went to college, I I was looking for an internship and uh, was lucky enough to get my foot in the door that way at Newmarket Battlefield uh, State Historical Park. And that was really where I got my my start in museums, I guess you could say. Uh, Well, that's why I certainly... We, we require, in fact, all our public history students uh, here at ECU, and most public history programs do, to, to have an internship for just that purpose, too, uh, both to see if it's what they really want to do and, and to get the foot in the door. Uh, there's, there's no better way, it seems to me, to get started than, than to just go and do it. Right. That's absolutely right. Now, so the... You say in the introduction, actually you have an introduction here written by uh, William C. Davis, and everybody listening to the show is familiar with uh, uh, with Jack Davis's work. He has written more books than most of us have read uh, in his long career. One of the first books I remember reading about the Civil War was his book on the Battle of New Market, and that book is... Uh, so you know, it just seemed so definitive at the time uh, that it would raise the question, why do we need another book on the subject? Uh, but you've got William C. Davis actually introducing your book. Why do we need another book on the subject? Uh, well, before uh, Davis's book, you know, uh, which came out in the mid-'70s, there was really no good single-volume look at the battle. A lot of the veterans uh, wrote, uh, either included it in their memoirs or wrote little uh, short uh, publications about it, uh, the one exception to that was around 1912 or so. Uh, there was a professor, I believe, from the University of Michigan, uh, wrote a book called The New Market Campaign, which was very heavily uh, Southern and biased. Uh, and that was the standard work for decades until Jack Davis's book came out in the mid-'70s. And his was always the, uh, the go-to book. Um, that was what we usually referred to uh, back referring to referring to the uh, interpreters there at Newmarket, you know, that was the basis for uh, what we would give our tours uh, from. And uh, like you say, it, it pretty much was the, the standard work there. Um, but in the uh, almost 40 years now since Davis's book uh, has come out, there have been some new sources that have been unearthed. Um, some of them were not previously known. Some of them were known, but had just never been uh, uh, tapped into with their uh, relation to the new market campaign, so there was definitely some new stuff that came about uh, in the in the interim since his book came out, and some of it actually changes uh, some of the conclusions that Davis made, and that was one of my uh, main interests was to see how he was going to react uh, to some of the conclusions I came to that were different from what he'd reached, and on most of them he actually told me that I'd convinced him uh, that uh, uh, I was probably more right than he was. <laughs> Well, that, that's yeah, one of the, very rewarding, actually. That is, that's one of the great things I think about practicing history is that it really is a, 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 a collegial, you know, cooperative endeavor. It's not, uh, or rarely at least, is competitive between historians. And, and uh, I'm not surprised to hear that he would say that. Uh, but it is, I'm sure, it must be very rewarding to be able to take a standard work like that and, and add to it and, and build on it. Well, let's talk about this. this Battle. Um, the he, I will preface for our listeners that uh, it's been a while since we've talked about a battle book on the show. Here, there are lots of them that come out, um, and uh, periodically I, I get some. And, and 
There are some in, in the past, listeners may remember a show a year or two back when, when I, I really was challenging an author on why do we need a book about this particular uh, piece of military history in such excruciating detail. In fact, it was about another aspect of the 1864 Shenandoah Valley campaign. Um, and I don't think uh, the author and I ever quite resolved that. Today, uh, reading this book, I really enjoyed this book, is, is what I'm getting to. I thought that this was very interesting, and uh, even though I knew who was going to win, I kept turning the pages uh, to see what would happen next. It was uh, it's very well written. And in that sense, it, it sort of deflects the reader's question, why do we need to know about this? Um, but let me ask that in a general sense. What uh, what do we need to know about this? Why why is it uh, worth a book? Uh, well, New Market, um, actually, uh, one of the reviews Jack Davis did of my book uh, says something to the effect that New Market is the, the Gettysburg of small battles in the amount of, of attention that it receives, and not just in print, but you know, just keeping it in the, in the uh, forefront of the popular mind. And I think the real, well, one of the main reasons for that is because of the participation of the Corps of Cadets from Virginia Military Institute. There were very few instances during the war where you see a cadet corps from one of these military schools literally taken from their classroom and put in the, uh, in the front lines uh, in, a, in a somewhat sizable battle. So that definitely uh, makes it unique. And it's also one of two battlefields in the Shenandoah Valley that's actually preserved and interpreted, Cedar Creek being the other one. And it's right next to Interstate 81. 81 actually goes right through the middle of the battlefield. So anybody that's traveling along there, uh, you look off to your west and there's the Bushong Farmhouse, and you can see the visitor center about 100 yards beyond that. So it, it definitely gets visibility that way among the not quite so historically minded crowd that would otherwise have heard of the Battle of Newmarket. And then, of course, for the, the Civil War minded, you know, you have the, the uh, VMI connection there that makes it unique and, and gives it some of its popularity. Well, we'll, we'll take a break right now. We'll come back and talk about the campaign that led to the battle and the battle itself. We'll be back in just a moment with Charlie Knight, author of Valley Thunder. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. In 1862, Stonewall Jackson turned the Shenandoah into a valley of humiliation for the federal soldiers. Would John C. Breckinridge be able to do the same thing in 1864? We'll find out when we return to Civil War Talk Radio. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Are you ready to go green? You've asked, and we've heard you. Introducing the Green Talk Network. Environmental topics are at the forefront of our society, and the Green Talk Network is here to keep you up to date on the latest trends and innovations for the eco-conscious lifestyle. We'll help promote a variety of ideas on the environment, from global warming issues to how you can become more eco-friendly in your daily activities. Be a part of the solution, not the problem. Visit thegreentalknetwork.com and tune in to help spread the green. 
You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Charlie Knight, author of Valley Thunder, The Battle of New Market, and the opening of the Shenandoah Valley Campaign, May 1864. In our first segment, we talked a little bit about the uh, reasons why this otherwise small battle has been remembered. Of course, the participation of the VMI cadets is probably the main reason, but it was not without some uh, strategic significance in 1864. Uh, Charlie, can you set the scene at the beginning of of the the spring campaign, why uh, or what both sides were doing in the valley? Sure. Uh, Well, of course, with the beginning of 1864, you have the advent of Ulysses Grant to overall command of the Union armies. And one of his main plans, which was actually uh, so simple it was brilliant, was to just occupy the Confederates on every possible front, just to have a simultaneous advance basically everywhere against the Confederacy. So the uh, uh, southern powers that be could not keep shifting back and uh, forces back and forth from one threatened area to another, which prior to that point in the war they'd actually been able to do pretty well. Uh, Chickamauga is a prime example of that. Uh, so Grant's idea was to advance everywhere at one time, and he was going to have three armies operating in Virginia. The Army of the Potomac, of course, would be the major one, and uh, there would be two supporting armies uh, to the Army of the Potomac, one on each flank. The Army of the James operating down here in, in Tidewater, Virginia, under Ben Butler, and in the Shenandoah Valley uh, were going to be forces under Franz Siegel. And uh, nobody really expected great things uh, from Siegel. I think it was more of a uh, uh, philosophy there that in the Shenandoah Valley and western Virginia that under Siegel's direction, even if he couldn't go out and do great things to contribute to the Union war effort that were going to bring about the end of the war themselves, he could at least keep a relative handful of Confederate forces occupied out in that part of the state, keep them from crossing over the mountains and joining uh, Robert E. Lee to fight against uh, the Army of the Potomac. Now, if if such if expectations are so low for Siegel, uh, why is he holding such a powerful command? Siegel knew the right people, basically. Uh, he was very well connected politically. Uh, the man had really never had any major success on the battlefield, uh, but of course, uh, he was not uh, not from the United States originally. He was uh, from what is today Germany, and even though his military career over in his homeland in in Europe had pretty much been as unsuccessful as his career would be over here during the Civil War, he was still viewed as uh, a leader in the German-American community. And the uh, Lincoln administration really needed support, especially in 1864. This is an election year that we're talking about here. And uh, Lincoln and some of his other uh, cabinet realized that if you put somebody who has a large popular backing behind them and a somewhat prominent command, uh, it's probably going to win you some votes at the ballot box. So that was the thinking behind giving Siegel a prominent command. Uh, Before he was tapped for command in western Virginia, he was up in Pennsylvania really just doing a uh, desk job, really just waiting for orders. And uh, the commander who was there in uh, in the valley at the time, Benjamin Kelly, was not really having things go his way. It wasn't 
all his fault. He didn't really have enough troops to operate with successfully. But uh, like I say, with 64 being an election year, uh, they thought this would be a good place to put Siegel. He, it would be somewhat of a prominent command, yet enough of a backwater that if he screwed up, it wouldn't really be that much of a problem uh, if things did not uh, did not go well for him. Uh, so he was given the command in early 1864. Uh, and it's interesting to note uh, that Grant did not want Siegel at all. Grant actually wanted uh, one of his buddies from the Western Theater, Edward Ord, to be given the command. Uh, but he was not uh, not able to convince Lincoln of that, so Siegel would be the overall commander in Western Virginia, and Ord was initially supposed to be the commander of the field army out there. But even that doesn't work out. Ord did not actually go into the field for this campaign. Right. Ord's tenure lasted for about two and a half weeks, uh, if that long. He and Siegel absolutely despised one another. Uh, each of them uh, was suspicious of the other's motives. Uh, they were uh, probably about as incompatible personalities as you could imagine uh, trying to work together, and it just it did not work out. Uh, Ord requested to be relieved of his command in mid-April before things really uh, got too far in the planning stage. I think he could see the writing on the wall uh, that if uh, he was going to be the one in the field, but Siegel was going to be back behind, uh, behind the uh, front lines there, uh, ostensibly in charge of the operation, that uh, things were probably not going to go well, especially if Ord was defeated on the battlefield. So it was probably better for his career that he got out of there when he did. So Siegel's in command, and his job uh, is, if not to skin, at least to hold a leg while, while Grant and other Union armies do things. Even within the, the valley, and, and here the readers are all, listeners are all encouraged to take out their nearest map of the valley or just call on their mental map to picture it. Um, the, the, it's sort of the same thing in miniature. You've got uh, not just Siegel, but, but other commands all trying to operate simultaneously. Uh, exactly. can, can describe that plan of campaign. Right. Uh, as things were initially planned, there was going to be a two-pronged assault in western Virginia. Uh, George Crook was going to be coming out of the Kanawha Valley to move against the uh, Virginia and Tennessee Railroad out in the uh, very southwestern corner of Virginia to try and sever that uh, communication line between eastern and western theaters there. And also he was going to have some supporting elements to branch out, attack the uh, lead mines at Withville, salt mines at Saltville. And then there's going to be another column. This one would be Ords that was going to come further north out of uh, Berkeley, West Virginia, and move towards Stanton. Uh, the plan would get revised a little bit, and instead of there being a column coming uh, from Berkeley, it was going to march straight up the Shenandoah Valley from Martinsburg. And uh, let me clarify by saying marching up the valley, uh, when you're moving south through the Shenandoah Valley, you're technically moving up. Uh, the river flows from south to north, uh, so it's kind of backwards if you're working on your middle map there. But if you're going south, you're going up the valley. And uh, the plan, as it would actually be put into operation, was for Crook's Column to operate in southwestern Virginia, for Siegel now, rather than Ord, uh, for Siegel to lead another column southward up the valley, and the idea was for these two to converge at Stanton and from there move either on Lynchburg or Charlottesville, as circumstances would dictate. So the the Union has a fairly intricate plan. Uh, what about the Confederate side? Do they, you mentioned they, they have to protect, uh, they've got to protect lead and salt mines. They've got to 
protect the valley itself, which is uh, uh, you know, a breadbasket for the Confederacy. Right. What kind of resources did, did they have available, and who was in charge? Oh, well, the Confederates were definitely outnumbered in that neck of the woods, but that was pretty much the case everywhere by this point in the war. In the Shenandoah Valley proper, you have about 1,200 men, mostly cavalry, under uh, John M. Bowden. And then further west out, actually in southwest Virginia, you have uh, probably about 4,000, and that's probably a generous estimate, of infantry, cavalry, artillery, all three branches under John C. Breckinridge. And uh, Breckinridge has an enormous amount of territory to cover with these very limited means here. Uh, he's got probably as many as four, probably more, uh, possible approaches he has to keep an eye on uh, from where he could be attacked come spring. So he's got his people spread out very thin. Uh, the Confederates out in this neck of the woods really have no chance at thinking about the offensive. This is purely going to be a defensive uh, campaign once everything gets started here in the spring of 64. So really all that Breckenridge can hope to do is to spread his people out thin enough, figure out where the threat is going to be coming from, and concentrate his people against them. Uh, he learns very early on that he's not going to be able to expect much in the way of reinforcements uh, from across the mountains from Lee. So pretty much the only areas he's going to be able to call on for reinforcements is from the valley, from Imboden, and uh, maybe pick up a few isolated commands here and there. And one of those that's actually offered to him as reinforcements is the Corps of Cadets from Virginia Military Institute, about 250 cadets. So that's a, a small regiment size. Right. Uh, so the uh, now this is happening in May 1864. So as you point out, there's uh, Lee is going to be quite busy. The Overland Campaign is just beginning. Right. Uh, the, so so Lee is is not going to be able to send reinforcements to Breckenridge. Uh, let's look at the the subsidiary operations, if you call it that, the Averill and, and Crook. Uh, how do they work out? They actually have, uh, well, Crook at least has more success than Siegel does. Um, they both, uh, well, all columns will start right around the 1st of May, and uh, pretty much right after Crook and Averill take the field, uh, there's no communication between them and Siegel, who's technically their boss, and that will come into play uh, in uh, kind of getting towards uh, mid, uh, mid-May here. But uh, Crook and Averill come out of West Virginia, start approaching uh, southwest Virginia, and by the time they're approaching what had been Confederate headquarters at Dublin, Breckenridge has already pulled about half of his people, two of his infantry brigades, out of there. They're already en route to the Shenandoah Valley. So he's already depleted the small number of troops that he had available to begin with. Uh, Crook will uh, defeat the uh, Confederate forces that are left behind outside of Dublin at Cloyd's Mountain, the Confederate commander there, uh, Albert Jenkins, will be uh, uh, mortally wounded in battle, and John McClausland will wind up taking command there of what's left of the uh, Confederate forces there. Uh, so Crook wins a huge victory there at Cloyd's Mountain, captures the uh, supply depot there at Dublin, is able to uh, start wreaking some havoc on the Virginia and Tennessee Railroad, and starts moving up towards Blackbur- Blacksburg and Christiansburg. Averill, however, does not meet the same uh, same success. He gets turned back uh, in his att- in uh, his attempt to take the uh, salt mines at Saltville, and this is where you see that lack of communication with Siegel start to come into play. Even though Crook has been successful on his part, he gets some faulty intelligence 
that the Army of the Potomac has been defeated by Lee at the Wilderness and that Grant and Meade are headed back northward in full retreat. Now, this obviously, if it's true, presents the uh, possibility that Lee could detach troops to come out to southwest Virginia and destroy Siegel's forces out there. Uh, Crook hears nothing from Siegel to uh, change his mind. Uh, as far as he knows, this intelligence is true. Uh, so, barring anything telling him otherwise, he and Averill retreat back to where they came from. So even though started off with success there on their part, uh, they're in full retreat by, uh, by mid-May back to where they came from, and the damage that they've done to the railroad is, is pretty much fixed within, uh, within a few days there. Uh, but it is sort of a blessing in disguise uh, for Breckenridge and Imboden that uh, uh, Crook is headed back out of there, even though he's defeated the Confederate forces left behind. He's now in retreat, so this means now that Breckenridge can turn his full attention to the Shenandoah Valley and really not have to worry about what's going on behind him anymore. So now the the main campaign is going to be Siegel marching southward up the valley toward uh, Breckenridge, really toward Imboden's cavalry, which is in in the front. Um, the, the, the this is the valley where Stonewall Jackson operated so successfully. And uh, the the maps in your book make help show what an influence terrain played on on this campaign. Can you talk about that? Sure. The uh, the valley, of course, uh, has mountains on both sides. Pretty much uh, funnels everybody into a, a relatively narrow corridor here, in which in which they're going to be able to operate. Uh, now, as Siegel starts moving southward, uh, once he gets past Winchester, then uh, he starts to slow down his advance a little bit. Uh, and that actually winds up being the gift that the Confederates needed for Breckenridge to uh, come into the valley there and join up with Imboden. But as far as the uh, mountains in this stage of the campaign, um, they offer quite a few hiding places for John Mosby, John McNeil, Harry Gilmore. Uh, Confederate rangers like these guys are hiding out in the mountains, and the farther southward that Siegel goes, these guys have more exposed uh, supply line here to attack against. So they're able to pop out of the mountains, hit with relative impunity, and go back to where they came from. And uh, that really starts to have a bit of a, a mental effect on Siegel at this point. And uh, also, this is probably one of the rainiest Mays in Virginia on record up to that point. Uh, the weather would alternate between being unseasonably hot and just all but a monsoon the next day. And it caused the Shenandoah River and a lot of these lesser streams also to rise up out of their banks and making the uh, the fields in which these guys are camping and maneuvering rather muddy as well. So uh, you definitely have the uh, the weather that's starting to, uh, to come into play here as well. Uh, and uh, actually, once the armies actually get to Newmarket, the battlefield there, you really see the terrain, especially the waterways in particular, really start to uh, to come into play more. So Siegel marches south uh, through this muddy area. That he's got the Valley Turnpike to work with, which is a, an all-weather road, but otherwise he's slowed down, and he's got guerrillas picking at his supply chain, and he's just taking his time. Uh, I, I was interested to read that he at one point captured some telegrams essentially saying where the Confederate forces were, uh, much as McClellan did in, in the Antietam campaign. Right. Uh, but uh, as you point out, you know, even George McCollin, uh acted faster than Siegel did in response to this. 
Right. This, this was really the intelligence that Siegel needed that, that should have spurred him into action. Uh, once, he got, uh, once he got marching, uh, he really seemed to kind of, I don't know if it was lose confidence in himself or if he just never really understood what he was supposed to do to begin with, but once he captures Winchester, he was continually sending off telegrams to Grant asking exactly what it is that he's supposed to be doing in the Shenandoah Valley. Grant would always send in the same answer, advance south, draw attention to yourself, if possible, defeat whatever's in your front, just trying to, to spur Siegel into some sort of useful action here. And uh, Siegel would normally reply back, well, I don't know what I'm up against. Well, as you mentioned, when he captures the uh, town of Woodstock in uh, Shenandoah County, he got in there so quickly that he actually surprised the uh, handful of Confederate cavalry there and managed to capture uh, some correspondence between Breckenridge and Imboden at the local telegraph office. And this actually uh, literally was the, the lost order of the Sharpsburg campaign here on a, on a much smaller scale, obviously. But it revealed exactly how many troops Breckenridge uh, was bringing. It revealed that Breckenridge himself was coming with them. It told where they were, when they expected to be there. I think one of them even uh, from Imboden said how many troops he had. So this, was, this definitely should have spurred Siegel into action now. If he was concerned about what was in his front, well, here it is laid out black and white for him that he has just about 1,000 cavalrymen in front of his roughly 10,000-man army. So there's really no excuse for him to be taking his time here. If he was so inclined, he could very easily have pushed Imboden out of the way and gotten on uh, probably in the vicinity of Stanton at this point before he would uh, have to worry about uh, meeting Breckenridge and possibly a battle with him. Well, this gets us right up to the eve of the battle. We'll take another short break, come back in a moment, talk more about the Battle of Newmarket with Charlie Wright. I'm Jerry, Charlie Knight, pardon me. Um, I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. The Battle of New Market, May 15, 1864, famous for the charge of the VMI cadets. We'll look at what else happened at that battle when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. Ready to revolutionize your thinking? It's time to learn about the clarity, simplicity, and speed of systems thinking and how it can be applied to every aspect of your daily life. Each week, tune in to Steve Haynes Live and learn one systems thinking concept. You'll also learn three simple, clear, and integrated applications that you can use instantly. You can apply them to your life, job, family, organization, government, and or society. Steve Haynes Live broadcasts every Tuesday afternoon at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Join Steve, and together we will make a global difference. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. 
talking today with Charlie Knight, author of Valley Thunder, The Battle of New Market, and the opening of the Shenandoah Valley Campaign, May 1864. It's a book just published, released on May 15, 2010, anniversary of the battle. And it's a very uh, engaging and interesting account of this battle that uh, draws on all kinds of sources unknown since the publication of uh, William C. Davis's uh, original standard book on the subject, on the Battle of New Market, uh, that lays it out in uh, uh, in very clear detail. So you can follow, uh, especially with excellent maps by George Skoke, who does uh, Civil War maps for a living uh, and is, is the best in the business at this. Um, it, it's uh, highly recommended, and uh, I know listeners will enjoy looking at this. In our first two segments, we talked about the uh, the history of the, the battles, uh, how it's been remembered, and about the campaign, uh, getting us up to the eve of May 15, 1864, with Siegel's army coming piecemeal uh, southward up the valley toward uh, Breckenridge and his army, uh, w- which are now at Newmarket. There's a the cavalry skirmish the night before the battle, which ends badly for the the Federals. Um, in in the book, uh, Charlie, you say that Breckenridge's original plan was to try to uh, lure Siegel into an ambush. Uh, why didn't that work out? Well, Siegel made pretty much the the cardinal mistake here of army commanders, and that being uh, dividing his forces in the face of an enemy. Uh, he really did not have his people concentrated since about uh, May uh, 7th or so when he uh, uh, when he was concentrated in Winchester. Once he started moving southward from there, he had his people strung out all along the Valley Turnpike. Uh, on the morning of the battle, his army literally covers 20 miles from the head of the column to the tail of the column. And we're not just talking, you know, from the, the cavalry vanguard to where the last wagon train is. No, it was 20 miles from the 1st Brigade back to the second brigade, and we're only talking about a two-brigade army here. So uh, this was definitely not the way you want to uh, handle your troops in the face of a hostile enemy. And the morning of May 15th, when the armies uh, first arrived there at Newmarket in strength, Breckenridge is there with everything he's got, uh, about 4,000, 4,500 or so troops. Now, he's opposed by less than one full brigade of Siegel's army under a fellow named Augustus Moore of the 28th Ohio, uh, now, Moore, uh, even though he's relatively new to brigade command, uh, he, knows that, uh, he knows that he's outnumbered here. He knows he's not in a very good place here. Uh, as soon as the sun comes up that morning, he's firing off telegrams back to Siegel's headquarters about 15 miles away, telling him, you know, look, there's enemy forces in my front that are uh, acting very aggressive. Uh, I'm in a, even though I've got some strong ground, I don't have the, the troops to hold it here. You need to bring up the rest of the army and do it now. Uh, so I think by uh, by mid morning, I think uh, Moore has fired off about ten or twelve uh, telegrams to that effect. Uh, but anyway, uh, Breckenridge's plan was to find himself some good defensive ground south of Newmarket, and it was uh, there was some good ground there. Uh, there's a few commanding hills there, and it's primarily open ground. So uh, he did have the ground to do it if his plan would have worked this way uh, to draw to get himself in good defensive position, use Imboden's cavalry. Uh, to to lure uh, Moore's Federals into attack, but again, uh, Moore 
Uh, he knows he's in over his head here. He has absolutely no intention of leaving the hill that he's on. Uh, he's going to stay there for as long as he can and just hope that it takes Breckenridge a while to, uh, to assess the situation there and that hopefully reinforcements will arrive before Moore himself gets crushed. And, and I thought it was interesting, the regiments Moore has with him are not actually his brigade. I mean, you say that, that Siegel's got two brigades in his army, but he almost he intermixes the regiments somewhat freely, so, so Moore doesn't have his own people with him. Right, exactly. And I, this is one thing I would love to find an answer to, but I've never found it, even among Moore's papers. Uh, Moore has uh, three infantry regiments directly with him. Like you say, none of them are his. He doesn't even have his own regiment, 28th Ohio, with him. They're all the way at the tail end of the column. Uh, so these guys that are with him, even though they're in the same army, they don't really know Moore. Moore doesn't know their commander, so you don't really have this, uh, this gelling, for lack of a better term here, between brigade commander and battalion level here. Uh, how much that really came into play, I don't know, but uh, th- it does raise a bit of a question mark there as to why Siegel did it, and to uh, uh, you know, especially given the circumstances here of doing that in the face of uh, of your enemy, knowing that there's probably going to be a battle if not that day, then the next. So when Moore sets up this line uh, just just north of New Market, he's got what few troops he has, he's got a little bit of artillery. Um, Breckenridge comes up and uh, sees that that I, I'm, and I guess it would be to his surprise uh, he actually outnumbers the Union force here. Uh, so what's his his plan? After he uh, after Breckenridge sees that the the Federals are going to have nothing of advancing on him, uh, that's when he uh, decides to go over to the offensive, starts bringing up uh, bringing up his people, and uh, let me say uh, now before I forget. May 15th is another one of these days that's uh, like monsoon season here in the Shenandoah Valley. It's pouring down rain uh, throughout most of the day. Uh, there will be thunderstorms coming on uh, occasionally throughout the day. So you definitely don't have the weather on your side here. So that has to be uh, kept in the back of everybody's mind here when you're discussing the, uh, the action at Newmarket. But uh, Breckenridge's plan is to uh, deploy his people on some high ground south of town, uh, lay into more with artillery for a while, and then advance on him, and his, uh, his plan, uh, when he actually uh, decided this part of the plan is up for debate, but uh, the position that Moore is in here, just north of Newmarket, um, if you take a look at a map of this part of the Shenandoah Valley and look at Newmarket, you'll see that the uh, Shenandoah River, the north fork of the Shenandoah, comes in from the west, makes kind of an inverted sea. Off to the east of Newmarket, you have Massanutten Mountain and a smaller stream called Smith Creek that also comes in in kind of a, uh, a C-shape there. So you actually have a, kind of like a, an hourglass-shaped peninsula north of Newmarket there, and that's where most of the action is going to be taking place. And there's only one bridge across the uh, Shenandoah River north, about uh, seven miles or so north of Newmarket. Uh, so Breckenridge's plan is that uh, if he can keep more occupied, can somehow get some troops, probably Imboden, around behind him and either destroy that bridge or get between the Federals and that bridge, and you might have the possibility here of bagging the entire force. So the the terrain really is going to shape things here. We have a, a constricted battlefield, the Shenandoah River on the west, the Smith Creek and the Massanutten Mountain on the east. There's there's not much, there's not going to be any wide-sweeping flank attack. This is a, a straight-ahead charge by the Confederates. Right, yeah, the, uh, the waterways here really constrict you into, into just a, a very narrow 
uh, avenue here in which to maneuver, and also the uh, Shenandoah River. In addition to it being flooded, you've got in some in some spots along it 200 foot sheer rock bluff that goes straight down. So there's definitely not going to be any uh, any grand flanking maneuvers out on the, on that side of the field. And so most of the time in the Civil War, when one army charges directly at another, it doesn't go well for the attackers, but uh, there are exceptions where uh, e- even against a defended position, the the attackers do break through. Gaines Mill comes to mind, or of course Missionary Ridge, um, and and now uh, New Market. Uh, Breckenridge's forces essentially uh, uh, drive the Yankees back uh, from one position after another. Right. Uh, Moore has his initial position. Breckenridge outnumbers him, overlaps him on both flanks. Moore. Uh, fights there for as long as he can, falls back a couple hundred yards, tries again, yet amazingly, uh, by this time Siegel has arrived on the field in person, uh, he tells Moore, uh, make a stand here, but I'm taking half of your troops. Uh, so the second Union position winds up being even shorter than the first. Uh, so this one obviously has no chance of holding for any length of time. Uh, however, this one uh, does, not, uh, does not go as well, if you can consider the first one going well. This one does not go as well uh, for Moore as the, uh, the one previous to it did. Uh, Moore's people, not only are they outflanked on both sides, but his two regiments, the 123rd Ohio and the 18th Connecticut, are basically just put to flight and for the most part routed off the field. There was uh, probably a handful of guys, maybe even some, uh, some companies that uh, kept their cohesion and stayed together, but for the most part, those two regiments... Their role in the battle is over and done with here. And uh, Siegel will form his third line on the Bushong Farm, which is probably the, the strongest position of the three that he had because uh, you have the uh, Shenandoah right directly on his right flank with these 200-foot uh, bluffs there. There's a, a hill there, Bushong's Hill, where Siegel will mass uh, two artillery batteries, 12 guns, and move his infantry uh, from that point down to the Valley Turnpike and have his cavalry uh, on the other side of the pike, stretching from there down to Smith Creek and have a couple more batteries in support of that line. So it's a very strong position here. And uh, even though Breckenridge's Confederates have overrun these uh, two positions prior to it, as you said, this becomes a frontal assault against a very strong position, and there's disproportionate amount of Federal artillery up there. And this time you see the, assault, the results that you would expect from a frontal attack against this position. The uh, center of Breckenridge's line uh, collapses uh, basically due to all this concentrated artillery fire right there in the area of the Bushong Farm. And that brings us uh, to the, the climactic moment then, with, with part of the Confederate line now giving way from this fire. Uh, 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 who steps forward? Well, up to this point, uh, the VMI cadets have been kept in reserve. Uh, that morning, Breckenridge told their commander he did not intend to use them wanted to keep these guys out of the line of fire for as long as possible, but he did warn them that should the occasion arise, he's not going to hesitate from putting these guys in harm's way, possibly in the front line. Well, by this point, that time has arrived. There's a huge gaping hole right there in the Bushong Orchard, and Breckenridge throws in his reserves. Uh, he Just because of the topography, one of the other front-line regiments, the 26th Virginia Battalion, had been forced to drop back out of the main line. They're sent in there and the cadets come in alongside of them right there, literally passing around the Bushong farmhouse. So they wind up not just, on, not, not just in, the, uh, in the front line, they're in the hottest part of the front line, right there in the, uh, in the Confederate center, which is really a place where uh, you did not want to be. 
so this is where the uh, uh, the legend uh, occurs, where, where the the boys go forward, and 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 how, how does their attack? Uh, well, well, tell us about their experience. Okay. Uh, well, as they're coming up, uh, headed up toward the toward this gap, uh, the Federals have noticed this gap at the same time. Siegel belatedly launches an infantry attack, sends his three infantry regiments headed down towards the uh, the Bushong farm. That attack, like pretty much everything else Siegel does during the campaign, is disjointed. The units go in piecemeal. They get repulsed. As the unit uh, directly in front of the Bushong farm, 34th Massachusetts, as they're making their attack, up come the cadets. They participate in repulsing that attack. Meanwhile, the uh, Union cavalry over on Siegel's far left, down on the eastern part of the battlefield, they have made an attack. They've been repulsed. They have not only been just repulsed, they've been routed off the field. So now Siegel's left flank is in the air, so the Confederate line over on that part of the field is starting to do a left wheel and come in and enfilade Siegel's line here. Uh, so you have the Union line already starting to collapse, and then you have a couple companies of Confederates over on the extreme left. They work their way along this bluff, and just because of the way that the uh, uh, ground is situated there, they managed to get up and surprise the Union gunners up there at the top of the hill. Uh, so you have the Union line getting flanked on both ends here, and at this point it becomes an all-out attack against what's left of the Union line, and the cadets wind up participating in that attack. Uh, most of the cadet accounts claim they were first. Uh, I don't think history really bears that out. They were definitely in the attack, but I don't think they led the attack. Which, which uh, I guess you put under the category of gilding the lily, you hardly need to be the first. It, it, it's quite enough that these high school age and younger boys were were participating uh, at all in this this uh, battle, and, and they don't need to be leading it to be famous. Right, and um, they definitely have the, the casualties to show that they were they were in the hottest part of this fight. They do, and 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 the, the fight is remembered uh, for that to this day. Um, unfortunately, as happens each week, we run out of time before we've said all there is to say. There's much more, um, but listeners, you'll want to get a copy of Valley Thunder, the Battle of New Market, and follow the rest of the story uh, through the Confederate victory and, and see what's become of New Market today. Charlie, thanks so much for being on the show. Ah, thanks for having me. And listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.